So we continue in our study in the book of Acts, and as we say every Sunday, this is about being His church, and we're in that part of the story where it's, a lot of it is about Paul. But don't make a mistake here of seeing this all being about Paul and not realizing that all of this applies to us today. That, that what Paul is providing for us is this example, and what Luke is showing us is how Christians should behave in even difficult situations. So in Acts 23, verses 12 through 35, it says, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. You know, a lot of times when we get together, you know, people ask like, well, how was your week? How was your week? 
Well, think about if you kind of ran into Paul at the end of this week, and you're like, Paul, how was your week? Eh, you know, not bad. I went to the temple. I got falsely accused of taking Gentiles in, and then a mob, you know, uh, started beating on me, and if, you know, hadn't been for these Roman soldiers that come in that kind of got me, but then they put me in chains, and and, uh, you know, put me on trial, and then they were threatening to, to you know, beat me to death. I appeared before the Sanhedrin. I got slapped just for a simple statement and insulted. Oh, and by the way, there's 40 people who vowed never to eat again until they kill me. How was your week, right? Pretty tough week. Paul's leading up to Jerusalem. He's traveling, and all these incredible things are happening. Everywhere he goes, there's just blessings from the, from the believers, wherever he goes, whether he knows them or not. It's, it's been incredible. And then he gets to Jerusalem, and even the Christians in Jerusalem, some of the new believers, don't trust Paul. And now he's being secreted away under heavy Roman guard to be able to get to safety. When we look back at verse 11, you know, the question might be like, why did Paul need a vision? Why did he need God to say something very specifically to him? Well, I think we just answered why. Paul had said earlier in chapter 19, he had said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm determined to go to Rome. Well, Paul now gets God's confirmation. After all these things, after having his life threatened, after being in the middle of this city where he's, he's in great danger, even though he's protected by the Romans, all of that, he gets this vision in verse 11 with God speaking to him where he says, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. You know, back in this ancient days, whenever prophecies were given, whenever prophecies were given by like non-Christian or non, you know, uh, Jewish biblical sources, they were always ambiguous. It was always something where it left it open to interpretation. And if you're going to tell the future, that's the smart way to do it. Okay? The smart way to do it is to keep it open-ended, keep it ambiguous. Keep it like those fortune cookies where you open them, you know, and they never specifically say, play these numbers and you will win $100 million. They just say something very general and ambiguous. It's why if you, people who like to follow their horoscopes, they're notoriously ambiguous. So you can interpret them however you want, and if it turns out you give credit to the prophecy, and if it's wrong, it's your fault because you interpreted it wrong. Well, there's no mistake here. There's no, like, hey, uh, Paul, you did a great job testifying in Jerusalem, 
And they really need something like that in Rome. Nope. There's no, hey, you're going to go and you're gonna, your, your testimony is going to be a powerful witness in Rome. Nope. It's very specific. You must testify in Rome. What does Paul know? Paul knows this. He knows that he might get attacked again. He knows that it might look dire. But God has told him he will be in Rome. At just the right time, this, this very non-ambiguous vision comes. And here in this story, we see that it's not all the, the Jews. Just understand that. Most of the Christians in Jerusalem are Jewish. There's a lot of Jewish people who don't really care one way or another, but there is a group that's very anti-Paul, anti-Christian. And that group, some of them even think may have come, had followed Paul. These people were so upset that they got mad at Paul in Asia and they came down following him. But they got the permission of the chief priest and the elders, which is probably the, the Sadducees. And they got their permission to go and kill this guy. And they took this oath. You know, usually in, in, you know, in our stories, um, you know, when we see movies and things like that, the murderous people are, are evil and they're mean. But we need to understand in the context here, these people aren't wanting to kill Paul simply because they hate Paul. They want to kill Paul because they believe God wants them to kill Paul. You have to keep that in mind. They believe that they are being faithful to their faith, to their scriptures. That Paul is, is somehow being blasphemous. Paul is, is, is ruining their faith. He's polluting their temple. They believe they're on the side of right. It's a much easier story if these guys are just jealous or if they're just crazy and angry or they're just always been hateful. Like Paul's just the latest. You know, we, you know we, we kill anybody we don't like. But that's not who they are. And, and it's, you know, we look at this and go, well, obviously Paul's in the right and the 40 are in the wrong. But that's because we look back and we can see it. In the moment, if you're in the moment when there are two or more people who disagree, but they all believe they are speaking what God wants, it's much more difficult. It's much more difficult to sort out. You know, we've, we've you know, talked about this before, but when there are two sides who disagree, there's usually, there's three possibilities, right? One side is right, one side is wrong, both sides are right, and then the possibility we never consider, both sides are wrong. 
right? All those, those are possibilities. But if you've ever been in this situation, you know, and, and if you've been in the church for any period of time, you, you've been involved in this even in a church, where you have people who so believe that what they are, what they are saying and what they're doing is right, and that it's from God, that it's threatening the unity of the church. And it's tough. It's hard to sort out. But that's where Paul is. Paul is being pursued by these people who so believe that they are willing to risk their lives to kill Paul. You can see in this story like all of the the, the, the political things which we can't forget that are going on. You know, you, you, you know that somehow Paul's nephew hears about this plot. I don't know how he hears about it, but somehow he hears about the plot. And he goes and he, and he talks to, 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 to Paul, but you notice Paul doesn't tell the centurion what his nephew said. And then even the tribune, when the tribune hears, he says, don't tell anybody that you told me. Why? The political tensions are so strong. Remember, this is a place that has, has had rebellion after rebellion. And in about 10 years, they're going to have the, the biggest rebellion, and eventually they're just going to, Romans are going to say enough, and they're just going to wipe them out. But you've got to know that in, the, in this climate, there's, you know, people have spies. People have sympathizers. There were Romans who, who would have ratted on the Romans to, to the Jewish leaders. And there are Jewish people who are going to tell the Romans what's going on. This tribune, is, he knows the situation. He understands. And he says, don't tell anyone. There's such a lack of, of trust and, and there's this tension here that's not just between the, the Jewish leadership and Paul. And notice what, what God does. You know, God just appeared to Paul in a vision. You know, why doesn't God just pick Paul up and take him somewhere safe? Why doesn't he put a force field around him so no one can harm him. But he doesn't really do that. Instead, he uses people. He uses the nephew. He uses the tribune. He's going to use the Roman soldiers, the Roman governor, and, and even Paul's citizenship. But I think what the big thing that, that Luke is doing for us, and it's something I, I want you to not miss, Remember, Luke's main reason for writing is trying to answer this question. He's trying to, I mean, sorry, ask this question to, the, to his readers who are largely um, Gentiles, Romans. And the question is, why do you hate us so much? Why are you trying to kill us? Why do you take joy when you see our people being slaughtered 
Why? And to make that case, he, he's presenting side by side these two ways of living. You have, you have the, the way of the world, which is represented in, in what's going on in the Jewish politics within, within the Jewish leadership, but also in the politics between the Romans and, and the Jewish people, and then the Rome, politics within the, the Roman leadership, all of that. You, you're seeing this picture. And you're seeing this, this picture of like this, you know, this um, distrust, dishonesty, anger, hatred, pride, all of that's going on. And then you see Paul. And, and Luke presents Paul, and he presents the rest of the Christians. He says, here's who they are. They're trying to follow God's word. They're trying to follow this, this way, Jesus Christ. And And what's, what's it leading to? Is it leading to politics? Is it leading to anger and distrust? No, it's leading to unity. It's leading to love. It's lead, leading to hope. It's leading to peace. It's leading to joy. And Luke is presenting them side by side for his readers 2,000 years ago. May I tell you, He's also presenting them side by side for his readers today. That when we, when we read this, we need to see Paul is showing us, I mean, Luke is showing us there's two ways in this world. There's the way of the world and there's the way of Christ. And ultimately, ultimately, what Luke is showing in this story, the difference can be seen here. Both ways are willing to die for their way. But only one way is willing to kill for it. Don't miss that. And the reason this is so important, the reason this is so important is because these two ways are still present today. And our world is still gripped by the way of power, of the strongest, of the, the, the most talented, the, the, the richest. It's the way of power. You either need to hold the power or you need to have really good relationships with those who have power. It's the game we play everywhere. It's the game your kids learn to play when they're kids. <laughs> you know, it's, it's what our dog does. Our dog has figured out the most powerful person in our house is my wife. So, you know, he devoted to her. He loves her. He follows her wherever she wants. I have no power when she's present. But it's, it's, it's the way of the world. And it's such the way of the world that, that even when the world tries to love, 
even when the world tries to follow the way of love, it still follows the way of power. It can't help it. It's, it's in the DNA of the world. That, that even how we love our spouses or love our, our children sometimes, it's, it's so much power-based about winning. When we get into even the, you know, the, the, the best, you know, working situations, it's power-based. When we talk about competition, there's nothing in some sense wrong with competition, but competition becomes wrong when that's all that it is because competition is essentially power-based. And I think that's the question we need to ask ourselves. We need to ask the question because I think most of us try to live our lives and we try to follow what, what the Bible says. We try to follow the truth. We, we try to follow Jesus. We try to follow the Word. And yet, we know in our relationships that sometimes we disagree and we clash. And the question is, okay, so which one's, which one's right? How do we know who to follow? Well, here's the question. Where is your way leading? Where is your truth leading? Where is it leading you, and where is it leading the others around you? Where is it leading your church? Is it leading your church to anger, bitterness, division? Is it leading your church to finding ways to to manipulate so you can control and get your way? Is it leading your church to infighting? Or is it leading your church to greater love and greater unity and greater joy and greater peace? When you say it that way, it seems so easy, so straightforward. It's kind of like when I was in, in college and I was taking calculus and the guy, you know, the professor would explain it on the board and it made perfect sense. But everybody who took calculus or higher math, you all know something magical happens when you leave the classroom and you go to your dorm room or to your, you know, to your house. Because something happens when you get over there and the same problem that made perfect sense when he was writing over there it's just gibberish. It doesn't make any sense at all. It's like, how is this possible? We hear about these two ways, and we think it's so clear. It's so, it just makes so much sense. It's such an easy test. And then we get caught up in our own relationships with our family. We get caught up in our own relationships with other Christians in the church. And we know that what we're standing for and how we're standing for it 
is causing us deeper and deeper anger and division, and we can't stop. We just can't stop. And that's within the church, with those of us who supposedly have God's Spirit and have been given the ability to love as only God can love. I want you to understand I'm not talking about compromising. Some people think the only alternative is fight or compromise. I'm not talking about compromising. There are certain things we should never compromise. But in not compromising those things, they should not lead us to anger and hatred and division. We were studying this morning, it's just kind of weird, it kind of coincided. This morning in a Bible study and going through the Gospel of Luke, you know, we were looking at the passage where Jesus says, and it's so great because you never hear this in a Christmas song, he says, do you think I came to earth to give peace? Is that what you think? (laughs) And he's asking his followers this. Do you think that's what I did? You know, I don't know if we have it up anywhere. Peace on earth somewhere. But that's what people think Christmas is all about, peace on earth. And in a sense, it is peace on earth. But see, the peace on earth that's here, that, that Christ came to bring, to get there, We have to go through this time of division. And that's what Jesus says. He says, when you follow me, the world is going to hate you. Not because you're doing hateful things. They're going to hate you because you're loving people. They're going to hate you because you believe in truth. They're going to hate you because you're trying to be more like Christ and the Holy Spirit is making you more like Christ. They're going to hate you. It's division. It's coming. And we totally get that. And we can, we can see like that's, yeah, Why does that happen within the church? I'm not sure. When I do marital counseling or when I make any presentations on marriage, you know, this is something I've said, and you guys have all, most of you have heard me say this before, but when you make your marriage relationship about power rather than love, when when your marriage relationship is first and foremost based on power, then there's only two possible outcomes. And the only two possible outcomes is you're going to be a loser or you're going to be married to a loser. And neither one of those leads to a healthy, happy marriage. That's true in all of our relationships. If we make the relationships in the church about power, about who has the power, who has the authority, then we're going to be a church full of winners and losers. And that's not how you find unity. But it's not about compromise. 
But what we should know is that whatever we're doing, as we're working through whatever the issues are, that it leads to greater love and greater unity. There are certain truths we find in Scripture that are essential truths to the Christian faith that we will never compromise, nor should we. But in our stance, not to compromise on those essential truths, it should never lead us to lack of love or less love. It shouldn't lead us to bitterness. And it's so hard to do. I'm going to tell you it's so hard to do. Whether you're trying to help a friend or you're trying to help a family member who maybe at one point embraced the truth but then is, has started to like wander away, it's so hard. Because all that mix of emotions that go in together, they, they can sometimes just produce such negativity. Where does your way lead? Where is it leading you to? What is it leading your family to? What is it leading your church to? We're going to disagree. We should disagree. And as long as we're not disagreeing on those essentials of the Christian faith, as long as we're not disagreeing over the, the absolute truth that we find in the Word of God, if we're not disagreeing on that, ah, we can, we can figure out ways to move forward together. But whether we figure out ways or not, in my own heart, it shouldn't lead to this anger and bitterness and division. It shouldn't lead to me trying to figure out how I can control these people so that they will go along with me. That's the way of power. And it's sometimes just masquerading under the language of love. Well, that's what Paul's confronting here. And let me just, you know, look at some of these, you know, back at this passage and um, we can unpack a little bit more of what's there. Paul has faced injustice after injustice. But you never see Paul hating. You always see Paul thinking about how he can reach his people, how he can reach out. And I think that's one of the first points that we learn from Paul, is that as the church, we should never be motivated by hate. Never be motivated by hate, even when standing against injustice. Paul is, you know, he's been falsely accused. He was mocked and insulted and physically assaulted several times. And now these people are plotting to kill him. If anybody, you know, had cause to be angry and bitter, it's Paul. But he doesn't. 
And I think it's be, one of the reasons is, is because of Paul's principles. And we, we've talked about this at the Bible studies. I don't know how many times on Sunday morning we've talked about Paul's three principles that he lives by and you see recurring in his letters and in his life. And his three principles is, are that you do everything for the glory of God, that nothing stands in the way of the gospel, and that everything is motivated by God's love. I think the reason Paul doesn't get so upset about the injustices brought against him is because he's not thinking about that. He's looking at every situation as an opportunity. An opportunity to bring glory to God, an opportunity to share the gospel, and an opportunity to show God's love. It seems like that sounds just maybe like wordplay, but it's not wordplay. It's how Paul really thinks and how he really lives. Even in prison, he's thinking the same things. We can never let hatred be our motivation. We've, we've talked about this before, God's standard for us, which is this impossible standard we can never do on our own. Let me make sure you get that up front. And that is that we love everyone perfectly all the time. And look at what Paul's facing. As he's thinking about all these people that he has to try to love perfectly, how do I, how do I love the tribune? How do I love these men who want to kill me? How do I love all these other unbelieving Jewish people? How do I love these Jewish believers that are in the church? How do I love all those other churches that I've been ministering to and I need to go back to? How do I love the people in Spain who've never heard the gospel? How do I do all that? Love everyone perfectly all the time. You see, what happens when we are especially at the center of injustice, when we are the ones that are kind of the focal point, as Paul is here, when you love in the face of injustice, it gets the world's attention. Because that's not the way of power. The way of power is to want to strike back. The Tribune just doesn't understand two things. He doesn't understand the question that Luke is raising, why do these people hate Paul so much? But the other thing he doesn't understand is, why does Paul still love them? Why does he still care about them? We only get his kind of public talks, but you can imagine the tribune has either spoken with Paul or he's overheard Paul, and he's watched Paul. He's observed him. And what he doesn't see is he doesn't see himself in Paul. He sees someone totally different because that's not what Claudius Lysias would do in that situation. 
I used to have this phrase that I say sometimes, but I don't say it as much because it takes too much to explain. But since I've explained it to you, I'll say it to you. As Christians, when in doubt, love. When in doubt what to do, say, I'm going to show God's love. That's what I'm going to do. What would God's love lead you to do in this situation? Paul knows in this section, it's the quietest Paul is. Paul only says one line, this whole section. Just kind of takes a step back. Others do things for him. The second thing we see here is we see, even though Paul got this supernatural vision in verse 11, he got this vision from, from God. The, the Lord affects the vision, puts it in motion using people and natural processes. This is how God typically works. God does the miraculous, the supernatural. That's, that's the exception. It's not the rule. The rule is God works through people and natural processes. Again, God could have magically transported Paul. He could have struck all those people who took an oath dead. He could have done all kinds of things, but he didn't do any of that. Instead, he works through people. He works through the nephew overhearing. He works through the nephew being brave enough to go and try to get in to this place that a lot of Jewish people would have tried to avoid. He works through the centurion, telling the tribune. The tribune getting together this, this group and believing and understanding who Paul is. We, we don't fully appreciate it because we just see numbers. But the tribune is sending half of his forces with Paul. Half. He's leaving himself exposed and vulnerable to make sure Paul gets to Caesarea safely. He's working through people like Claudius Lysias who, who is willing to put himself at risk. All these things. And we're introduced to this, this, this character at the end, the governor, Claudius Felix. And he's even going to work through him. Notice, God is orchestrating all of these things with all these different people. Some of them who know Paul, some of them who love Paul, some of them who, like Claudius Felix, are not really good people. Not good people at all. And it's tough for us because it's hard for us to, you know, to see God at work. We, 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 we want to say, you know, God, show me yourself. And God is like, I am. If only you knew all the people that I've 
brought into your life to help you. All the people that, have, that are helping you walk in your faith. And if you only took advantage of all the other opportunities that you're missing out on, oh, you, would, you wouldn't ask, where are you? You wouldn't ask, show me. You would see, you would know. The last thing we look at here is just right at the very, very end. After he gets this letter from, from after the governor gets a letter from the tribune and, and he reads it and then he asks Paul, where are you from? And it seems that he understands Paul's within his jurisdiction so he can, he can you know, hear the trial. And then it says, and he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Simple thing. Simple thing, but a very powerful thing that God can do with people who are committed like Paul to bringing glory to God, to sharing his go the gospel, and to, doing, to, to do everything out of love. What can God do with those people? Well, we know how this, where this story goes. We know that this is the beginning of a two-year stay in the praetorium. And we know that while Paul is there, Paul is going to witness to the governor. He's going to witness to the king. And he's going to witness to the next governor. Paul's not only going to do that, Paul is going to also be receiving visitors, writing letters, encouraging churches. And you've got to know that Paul is going to be talking to whoever will listen about Jesus, even the Roman soldiers. He's living out this love your enemy thing. And he's saying, okay, this is where I am. This is where I'll minister. And he does amazing things. And what we see here, and I think what Luke is trying to help us, under, help us see, is that if, if we didn't know the story of God being involved, if we just thought about, oh, there was this guy, and he was falsely accused of stuff, and then he got taken up to Caesarea, we would just go, okay. But what we see is we see that God is directing all things for His kingdom purposes. He's not done with Paul. He's going to be using Paul wherever he takes Paul. And Paul is cool with that. He's, a, he's good with that. He's not sitting there complaining, I would rather be here, I'd rather be there, I wish I had this, I wish I had that, which is what happens to so many people, so many Christians, so many pastors get so dissatisfied. They just want to go to the other place, the, the, the bigger, the better. And it's like, have you really done everything possible in the situation that you are in to bring glory to God, 
to share the gospel and to love the people. Have you? If you have, okay, now you can get kind of, you know, start looking, right? So many people, church members, you know, they're in one church, and, you know, we don't really have that issue here, but there's like, they, they, they call them the church hoppers. They hop from church to church to church. Always dissatisfied. Always looking for something more. Always looking for God at work. Missing what God is doing. But I want you to get it. It's, he's directing all things for his kingdom purposes. He's not directing all things for Paul. He's not directing all things for Paul's ministry. He's directing all things for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the same God who's protecting Paul right now is going to allow Paul to be executed later on. We have to keep that in mind. That whether God is protecting, God is providing, God is allowing suffering or persecution, or God is allowing us to die, that if we're following Christ, it's all for His kingdom purposes. It's the same God. He doesn't change. And if we're in all of those situations, whether we're in a time where, of time of plenty, where God is blessing us in so many ways, are we in the blessing? Are we trying to bring glory to God, doing what we can to share the gospel and loving all those around us? Are we? Maybe it's not a time of plenty for you. Maybe it is a time of hardship. In the time of hardship, are we doing the same things? Trying to bring glory to God, share His gospel, love as only God can love. Whether it's the time that catches most of us, it's just boring. <laughs> it's just life. You know, like, show up or go to work, or maybe you're retired. I get up, you know, water my plants, watch a little TV, and get up and water some more plants. You know, maybe that's what life is. It's just so routine. But in the routine, are you doing all you can to bring glory to God, to share His gospel and love others? You see, if we're doing that, then in the midst of suffering, the pain has meaning. In the midst of blessing, the blessing has purpose. And really, in the midst of the routine, it is never boring. Because you're always looking and seeking and asking, what do you have for me, God? How can I love? How can I grow? How can I share? How can I bring you glory? We don't know 
all of God's kingdom purposes and, and how everything is working together. But we know, as we've said, if we are faithful, God will lead us and He will use us as individuals and as a church. And really, the action point for this, this week is the same as always. We need to learn more. We need to be disciples. And we're learning God's truth, God's Word, but we're also learning about what God's love is. And we need to know how we can show, show it to each other and to the world around us.